Right. Turn with me, if you would, to Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter number 4. 1 Corinthians chapter number 4 is where we'll be tonight. And allow me to read the text beginning at verse 8, going down through verse 13. As we continue this exposition, I'm going to preach a message tonight entitled, Glorious Filth. Glorious Filth. Beginning at verse number 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, these are the words of God. Now ye are full, now ye are rich, Ye have reigned as kings without us. And I would to God, ye did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God hath set forth us, the apostles last, as it were appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but Ye are strong, ye are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world." and are the off-scouring of all things unto this day. This passage sharply displays the extraordinary antithesis between the self-centered message of the world and the cross-centered message of the Bible. The world says, believe in yourself. The Bible says, believe only in Christ. The world says, trust in the power of positive thinking. The Bible says, trust only in the power of the cross. The world says, have high self-esteem. The Bible says, humble yourself and become abased. The world says that the greatest things in life are money and health and ease and prosperity. And the Bible says that your greatest privilege is to suffer shame and reproach for the sake of Christ. But what happens in apostate Christianity is that these putrid worldly ideas seep into the mindset of the church and pervert our understanding of the gospel. Thus you have preachers preaching that God wants you to be happy, wealthy, and healthy, and that's why He sent His Son. And you have Christians that think that to be spiritual is to be prosperous in the world and to be godly is to be well favored in the world. This wrong thinking, though so familiar in our day, is certainly nothing new. This very ideology was pervading the Corinthian church. They knew nothing about what it meant to take up their cross and follow Christ. They thought that their Christianity would propel them to the upper echelons of society. They thought that their Christianity would place them on a pedestal of worldly admiration. But Paul in chapter 4 is now stepping in to say that if your Christianity does that for you, it is not true Christianity. True Christianity does not make you loved by the world. It makes you despised by the world. 
Christianity does not lift you up in the eyes of men. It puts you down in their esteem. Now, yes, it is true that via common grace, there are Christian traits and characteristics that the world at least in our society, does esteem to some extent or another. That's just because of the progress that the gospel has had in America. But at the core, at the core of the heart of men and women, there is an antithesis between the worldview of the Bible and the worldview of secular culture. And with his correction, Paul is putting forth a very important principle. One of the marks of a true servant, is his or her willingness to suffer shame and reproach for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is not interested in calling those who desire to preserve themselves, vindicate themselves, and build up their own kingdom. God calls those who are willing to spend and be spent for the glory of King Jesus. Those greatly used of the Lord will pay the price for their faith. Those who stand for truth will endure the derision of the world. Those who seek to be like Christ will face the persecution of those who hate Christ. But brothers and sisters, it is our willingness to suffer that becomes our greatest qualification to serve. The Bible teaches this principle, and church history certainly bears it out. The prophet Isaiah was put in a log and sawed in half. The weeping prophet Jeremiah was stoned to death. Daniel was thrown in the lion's den. John the Baptist was beheaded and his head was placed upon a charger. Eleven of the original apostles were martyred for the faith. John, the beloved disciple, was exiled to Patmos where he was burned alive in Greece. Ignatius was thrown to beasts in the Colosseum. Polycarp was burnt at the stake. Justin Martyr earned his name by giving his life for the gospel. Martin Luther had a bounty on his head in Germany. William Tyndale was burned and strangled for daring to provide the common man with a coherent translation of God's word. And as he died, he cried out, Oh God, open the eyes of the King of England. The blood of the Scottish Covenanters and the Puritans flowed in the, in the streets for their rejection of Romanism and state religion. Countless Baptists and other dissenters were put to death for the purity of the gospel and the testimony of the Lord Jesus. Other believers in more recent days have experienced lesser forms of persecution, but persecution nonetheless. Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest theological minds of this continent, was kicked out of the church that he faithfully pastored because of his unwillingness to go along with doctrinal compromise. George Whitfield and John Wesley record the opposition that they faced in open-air ministry as rocks and debris and even dead animals were hurled at them as they preached. Charles Spurgeon, though revered in our day, was hated in his own day as the Baptist Union turned their backs on him for rejecting theological liberalism and what we now know as the downgrade controversy. See, the truth is this. Those who share in Christ's riches 
also share in his sufferings. And the events of church history would have come as a complete shock to these Corinthians who thought that the Christian life was flowery beds of ease and worldly acclaim. But Paul knew what life entailed for a true servant of Jesus Christ. And he will now very bluntly and even a bit crassly detail for them just what this service looks like. So I have a very simple outline for us to follow tonight. The first thing I want you to see is this, the sarcastic assessment. The sarcastic assessment. Beginning in verse number 8, Paul will now rebuke this carnal and worldly mindset of the Corinthians with biting sarcasm. In the previous section of 1 Corinthians, God rebuked their pride, but now He is manifesting their pride and deriding their pride. There is an evident climax in this verse. It is as if Paul is ratcheting up the sarcasm with each phrase. Notice it in verse 8. He says, Now ye are full. Now ye are rich. Now ye have reigned as kings without us. The two phrases to begin have to do with having all you could ever want or need in this life or in the life to come. It is as if Paul is saying to the Corinthians, well, don't you just have it all? I I don't even know why I'm preaching to you. I I don't even know I'm writing this letter to you because, by the way, you behave. You've arrived. You you figured it all out. The Corinthians behaved as if they had no need for spiritual growth, no need for further development in the faith, No need for a deeper understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Now, they had learned those lessons. They had graduated. They were even surpassing Paul. Surely, they were not going to endure any hardships or tribulation. Obviously, they were above that. Have you ever met someone who postulated themselves as so godly? and so advanced in the faith, and so knowledgeable, and so mature, that you just didn't understand how they weren't already in heaven. Well, that is what Paul is thinking as he observes the mindset of the Corinthians. And we have noted this point several times in this exposition, and we find it again here. But the irony of ironies is that it is those who think they are so advanced and those who think they have made it so far that actually have not mastered the first rung of biblical Christianity. Because in just a few chapters in this very epistle, Paul will have to write to them concerning some of the most immature and immoral sins that Christians could commit. He will have to tell this advanced church, this church that thinks they've got it all figured out, he will have to tell them that That you cannot sleep with your father's wife. That that you cannot sue your brothers and sisters in front of unbelieving courts. Uh, That you cannot visit pagan temple prostitutes. That you cannot go to a pagan feast and eat meat that was sacrificed to idols. He will have to instruct them in these very basic things. Yet these were the people that thought they'd arrived. The church has always been plagued with individuals who thought they'd arrived when in reality they haven't left the starting blocks of biblical Christianity. 
These are the type of people who have never consistently sat under faithful preaching and teaching, yet they claim that their theology is better than everyone else's. These are the type of people who are very quick to lament the evils of society while conveniently ignoring the sins of their own heart. These are the type of people that will post on social media about how God will destroy the heathen while forgetting that but for the grace of God, they would still be the objects of His wrath as well. We read this text, may we humble ourselves and ask God to show us who we really are. And if you see in your self-assessment that you are making progress, as, by the way, all believers should, if you are a believer in Christ, if you examine what you believe now and, and, and how your walk with the Lord is now and you compare it to a year ago or two years ago, you should see progress. Ah, but brothers and sisters, do not think for a millisecond that that is anything to do with something that you have achieved in the flesh. No, look at that progress and then fall on your face and give thanks to the God who supplied the grace to sanctify you. Amen. Those who think they've arrived would be shocked if they actually saw what little progress they've made in the Christian life. I believe it was Augustus Toplady, the Anglican hymn writer, the, the, the man who wrote Rock of Ages. He was a very godly man, and on his deathbed he was asked, Mr. Toplady, you are, you are nearing death. Can you give us a word of wisdom about your Christian life? You've been a believer for decades. You, could you give us a word of wisdom? And Augustus Toplady said, As I think back on my Christian life, I don't think I've ever had one entirely pure thought or done one entirely pure deed. Martin Lloyd-Jones, nearing the end of his life, his people would come to visit him. He eventually got to the point where he was bedridden and he was stuck inside and he was known for saying, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a greater Savior. I am a great sinner, but Christ is a greater Savior. See, that's what sanctification does for you. Sanctification, it will make you sin less, but it won't make you sinless. And sanctification, what it will do for you, brothers and sisters, is not so much give you this wonderful report and so you can see, well, look how great I am, but it will grow you in your dependence and reliance upon the continual grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Corinthians didn't understand that. And so Paul was, was really mocking them. Now ye are full. Now ye are rich. And then notice what he says. Ye have reigned as kings without us. The, the us is a reference to Paul and the other apostles. Again, this, this is dripping with sarcasm. Paul is saying, well, it, it must be so nice for you to reign like kings because we apostles, we're still suffering. We're still being persecuted. I was just stoned and beaten and left for dead. And here you are, reigning. Paul goes on and he says, And I would to God ye did reign. <laughs> Paul's saying, I wish it were true. Because then maybe I could join you. Verse 9. For I think that God hath set forth us the apostles last, as it were, appointed to death. Paul is juxtaposing the Corinthians' view of themselves with the actual perspective of the apostles. Paul says, you Corinthians are full. 
You're rich. You reign like kings. But we are last. We are appointed to death. Paul describes true ministry with vivid pictorial language that would have been much more familiar to first century readers than it is to us. When he says, the apostles are last, appointed unto death, we are made a spectacle unto the world. If you study this verse out and you look at commentators, there are, there are two possible scenes that Paul could be referring to. And commentators are not certain as to which it is, but both descriptions are fitting. The first scene is that of the Roman Colosseum. In Rome, spectators would flock to the Colosseum to watch as wild beasts devoured the enemies of the empire and all of the other miscreants of society. This barbaric form of entertainment was was very common in ancient Rome. And it was so common that Roman citizens would become desynthesized to it. Again, we we look around at our culture today, and I'm not uh, making light of the ills of our society, but sometimes we as Christians, we have a tendency to think that this persecution and this antithesis between uh, Christians and the world began in 1950. Okay, We think church history began last Tuesday, and we think Jesus is coming back next Friday. But we need to understand that this is nothing new. And so Rome had this barbaric Colosseum, and, and... the Roman citizens were becoming desynthesized to it. So what they would do is they would, in order to keep the crowds from leaving early, they would always reserve the most notable victims for last. And so the very last individuals to be murdered in the Colosseum were oftentimes the Christians who had the most profitable ministries. So when Paul says that we are appointed last to death, and we are a spectacle to the world. First century readers would obviously think immediately of this Colosseum. But the other scene that Paul could possibly be referring to is the scene of a Roman victory procession. See, when the Roman army would go off to conquer a foreign land, the Romans would return with a grand victory parade. Caesar would be sitting upon his throne and the citizens would line the streets as the Roman army and the Roman general and the Roman soldiers would triumphantly march into the city with all of their chariots behind him. And these chariots would carry the spoils of the conquered lands. Then would come the bull that would be offered to Caesar. Then the soldiers would hold up pictures of drawings of the annexed land so that the citizens could see the territory that had been annexed. And the very last chariot would have dragging behind it the princes of the conquered land. And they were brought back to Rome. And they were mocked. And they were derided. And they were thrown in cages. And then they were publicly executed. The humiliation the degradation, the mocking, the derision. This is what Paul refers to as he compares the gospel minister to the maligned and abused victims of Roman brutality. Gospel ministers are a spectacle to the world because their ministries are conducted in the open. There is no such thing as a secret service Christian. They are unashamed. They are public This is the way that the Christian life is to be lived. 
The world must know where we stand even though they'll stand against us. The world must know what we believe even though they reject it. And the world must know who our God is even though they hate Him. This is Paul's view of ministry. For Paul, ministry was not wearing a suit and preaching a grand sermon and having everyone like you. That was not Paul's view of ministry. Paul's view of ministry was not going on TV or or preaching to auditoriums of thousands and millions of thronging crowds. Biblical ministry is living for the gospel, suffering for the gospel, perhaps even dying for the gospel. But far too often, brothers and sisters, instead of hearing the true gospel of cross-centered obedience, we hear the Corinthianized gospel of, I'm fat, I'm full, I'm a king. But this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to serve Christ. Understand, this is God's calling upon your life. Live in Christ and die to yourself. And the rest of this text is, is Paul expounding upon this central theme. So notice, secondly, we, we saw the sarcastic assessment, but I want you to see, secondly, in verse 10, the satirical analogy. The satirical analogy. Paul says, We are fools for Christ's sake, but ye are wise in Christ. <laughs> we are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Paul is, of course, here mocking the opinions of the Corinthians. Paul did not preach the ideologies of the world. Paul lacked the theatrics and the showmanship that was so desired by the Corinthians. Paul played the same song, in the same key, on the same trumpet, on the same stage, in the same auditorium. And for that, because Paul just kept preaching the message of the bloody cross of Christ... And Paul was persecuted for the truth, yet he kept preaching the truth, even though compromise would have made the persecution stop. And for these reasons, the Corinthians thought that Paul was foolish. They thought that Paul was weak. They thought that Paul was despised. Have you ever experienced something like this? Have you ever been witnessing? Have you ever been sharing your convictions, your biblical understandings, the truths that you believe, and you perhaps have had someone say to you something like, well, aren't you worried about what people will think about you if you believe such a thing? Aren't you worried about how, how people will think about you if you live in such a way? Don't you know you'll, you'll ruin your social standing? You'll, you'll lose friends if you do that. That's very foolish of you. It's exactly what the Corinthians were saying to Paul and the other apostles, and everyone else who wanted to stand on the truth of the Bible and did not care about the opinions of men. Paul did not desire to be culturally accepted or relevant. Paul's feelings were not hurt when he didn't receive Book of the Year when he wrote Romans. He knew the God he served, and he knew what that service required of him. May we not be so caught up in worldly acclaim that we lose our usefulness to God. But may we preach the cross. May we focus on inward piety and personal holiness. May we humble ourselves and serve Christ as the beggarly slaves 
that we are. I have, on more than one occasion, been accused of being a pietist. Oh, you're, you're a pietist. You don't, you don't think enough about reconstructing kingdoms and, and uh, uh, exercising dominion. You're, you're a pietist. And I say, brothers and sisters, if we in our own personal hearts and lives are not separate and consecrated unto God, how could we ever be useful in the society in which we live? If I'm a pietist, so be it. But is that not what Paul is trying to get the Corinthians to understand? That's the satirical analogy. But I want you to see thirdly, the sustained afflictions in verse 11. Paul will list for us just six of the many trials he endured in his ministry. And for some of us, just one of the items on this list would be enough to get us to recant our profession and relinquish our commitments to serve Christ. Notice in verse 11, he says, even unto this present hour, meaning at the time he is writing this, at the time that the Corinthians are are thinking that they are so high and lofty, even unto this present hour, Paul says, we both, the apostles, hunger, thirst, are naked, are buffeted, have no certain dwelling place. And labor, working with our own hands, verse 12, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we suffer it. Because of his ministry, Paul was denied the basic necessities of life. Food and drink and raiment were not guaranteed to Paul. Because of his ministry, Paul modeled after the Son of Man who had not a place to lay his head. Because of his ministry, even though Paul clearly argues that ministers have the right to be supported by the church, Paul did not have that opportunity, but he worked with his own hands to provide for himself. Paul understood what it meant to sacrifice for the Lord Jesus. And Paul was beaten and marred for the furtherance of the gospel. While the Corinthians were sitting around and acting as if they had already entered into the new heavens and the new earth, Paul was busy suffering for the privilege of serving Christ. Paul recounts his trials in 2 Corinthians in chapter 11, verses 23-27. to You don't have to turn there, but... Paul says this, he says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. Of the Jews five times received I forty stripes, saved one. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I have been in the deep. That is, Paul spent an entire night and day treading water because of a shipwreck. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and in thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. By the way, none of us have ever experienced anything remotely similar to what Paul did for his faith. Understand, we live in an age, as American Christians, that is really a historical anomaly within church history, with relatively no persecution. For one of the first times in the last 2,000 years, we are able to freely meet together and freely assemble. Uh, If we... If we want to have service here at any time, we can do so. If we want to go out in the streets and proclaim the gospel, we can do so. If we want to knock doors, we can do so. 
But yet, Facebook censors one of our posts and we think we've been persecuted. That's only because we have no idea what it's like to be in the position of the Apostle Paul or even in the position of our brothers and sisters in other countries that do experience severe persecution. But may we never forget what our forefathers in the faith endured before us so that the gospel could so freely flourish as it does now. Understand this, the liberties that we have now are not due to anything we are currently doing. I can assure you of that. They are vestiges of the grace that God has given to us in the past. And if we continue on this road of apostasy, how long can we live on that grace? May the Lord revive us again and infuse new grace. If we begin to view ourselves as the Corinthians did, we have no reason to think that God will maintain this state of ease. May we use this time of peace to do mighty and great things for the kingdom of Christ. May we always remember the afflictions sustained by the martyrs before us who remain faithful in times of great adversity. Now, I understand that a text like this might raise a logical question. And one might hear this, if this is the only sermon in this exposition, and they might conclude that we believe that Christianity is ultimately going to fail, and Christians are ultimately going to lose, and the gospel will not accomplish very much. And all throughout church history, there will only be these small pockets of poor, beaten, martyred Christians scattered throughout the world. But I want you to understand that's not the case. It's not the case at all. The gospel will be victorious. The gospel will triumph. Christ will accomplish everything He died to secure. But that victory will not come through the will or the might of our own flesh. And it will not come through persuading the world by worldly ideologies and by carnal means of attraction. That victory will come through the grace of God as He works through His church to administer that grace and save sinners. Amen. We are not pessimillennialists around here. Amen. But we, we do understand that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the only means by which Christ's kingdom will advance. And where there is no true regeneration and true conversion, there is no advance of Christ's kingdom. And apart from regeneration, the natural man will always hate the things of God. But blessed be unto God that God's grace can overcome the natural disposition of fallen man and can redeem him and make him a trophy of that grace. I say that because we've looked at the satirical analogy, the sustained afflictions, but now I want you to see the sufferings answered at the end of verse 12. The sufferings answered. And I say what I just said to provide you some context because Paul will now give a explanation of these sufferings and he will interpret how he views these sufferings in a way that if we don't understand what I just laid out will make no sense to us. With all of this opposition, certainly Paul must have been very bitter and must have been very angry and he must have desired to get back with his enemies every chance he got, right? After all, that's what you and I would do. Is it not? When someone insults you or snubs you on account of your convictions or by the way that you live your life, how do you respond? Probably not like Paul. 
See, you must remember that the ethics of the cross are so radically different than our self-interested, self-centered, and prideful motivations. Paul was not interested in vindicating himself. Paul did not think, I'll show them. I'll put on the caps locks and show them how right I am. No, Paul had taken a lesson from the Lord Jesus, of whom the Bible says in 1 Peter 2 and verse 23, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Paul knew, vengeance is mine, I will repay, thus saith the Lord. So look at the end of verse 12. Paul says this, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, verse 13, we entreat. What was Paul's response and reaction to all the injustices and abuses and malignments that he endured? Did he seek to right the plethora of wrongs done against him? No! He realized that he was not a servant of Paul. And his task was not to defend and preserve the honor and glory of Paul. But he was solely to advocate for Jesus Christ. When Paul was reviled with injurious words, he responded with a blessing. When Paul was persecuted with injurious acts, he suffered it. When Paul was defamed with injurious lies, he entreated them. His response to his sufferings is quite possibly more flabbergasting than the sufferings themselves. Some of you might say that Paul was weak for responding in such a manner. Paul, why don't you stand up for yourself? That's exactly what the Corinthians thought. But understand this, a weak man is one that is so insecure that he must constantly vindicate himself to the world. Strength is knowing your position in Christ and carrying on in the face of a despising world. And this type of answer can only be given by someone who actually understands what it means to be called into the service of Christ and who truly values the name of Christ above his own. The call to the ministry, the call to Christianity is come unto Christ and be made the filth of the world. Come unto Christ and be made the offscouring of all things. But brothers and sisters, what glorious filth. God is using glorious filth to advance the kingdom of Christ, to glorify His Son, to propagate the gospel, to lift up the cross, and to draw men unto Himself. He doesn't need the mighty men of this world. He doesn't need the smart guys. He doesn't need the intellects. He uses glorious filth. Again, glorious filth, off-scouring of all things. These are very illustrative pictures. The filth of this world refers to that which is repulsive, that which is disgusting, that which is contemptible, that which is offensive. The filth of this world is the reason that when Abigail and I drove to Clarksville this morning and we passed by the Stewart County, Montgomery County landfill, we closed the windows and turned the circulator on in the car because we don't want the filth of the world getting in our car. Paul says that someone who unapologetically stands for the truths of the gospel, when the world drives by, they roll up the windows because they don't like it. The off-scouring of all things. Do you know what the off-scourings are? Imagine if you would, I hope we've all eaten tonight, but imagine if you would, a society uh, with no plumbing, with no waste system, 
where men are primarily walking around in sandals. Imagine how dirty your shoes would get and how filthy your feet would be. And off-scouring, it's the same Greek word that was commonly used to refer to that which you scraped off your shoe at the end of the day. The gunk that you would scrape off of your shoe. When Paul says these things, he's not speaking with a martyr's complex. He's He's not throwing himself a pity party. He's telling it like he is. Paul understands how the world will think of you and how the world will treat you when you reject their worldview and their ideologies and their beliefs and their ways of life. But brothers and sisters, we are not here to win a popularity contest. That's right. That's right. We know what we believe. We know why God has placed us here. We know what our calling is. May the Lord only help us to remain faithful amidst the tensions of this world. And if He grants us a greater period of ease where we have even more liberty to propagate the gospel, let us use that. But if not, let us endure. Let us take courage that in times of the most intense persecution were also the times in which the church did the most. Other than the Bible, the most popular book to ever ever have been written in the English language is Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. Do you realize he wrote that book while serving a 12-year prison sentence for preaching the gospel in a day and age in which Baptists were not allowed to meet as churches? If you commit your life to Christ, there will be opposition. But what you gain in Christ will far exceed what you lose in yourself. Let us gladly give ourselves our reputations, even our well-being, if it so means that Christ will be lifted up and His kingdom advanced. Will we be seen as the filth of this world? Yes, but what glorious filth. God uses glorious filth to accomplish His plans and His purposes to bring honor and glory unto Himself. Let us lay down our own gains and our own interests at the foot of the cross and become sold-out followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name for Your goodness to us. We thank You for the word.